Hey everyone, Peter from the future here. Just letting you know that this is part two of our Common Mistakes Made by New Designers episode. You can find the first part earlier in the feed and I recommend listening to that for context and because it's a part two. And why would you listen to part two without listening to part one? I mean, look, live your life however you like, but I don't think that makes much sense. Anyway, enjoy. On to playtesting. One thing that I see all the time is giving advice to the players during a playtest. <laughs> do not do that. Obviously. The point of playtesting is to see how is to this is going to shock you is to test how your game plays. And if you are the one playing it, then you're really not going to get there. I'll tell you the number one thing that I wish more new designers did with playtesting. Give me permission to bail. Right now I give myself permission to bail because I just do not have the patience for it. But most people are not as rude as I am frankly. Most people are not as forthright and blunt and will sit there and play your game for three hours despite the fact that all the notes they needed to give was ready in half an hour. Every time I start a playtest, I say, hey, we can stop this at any time. If you stop having fun, let me know, we will stop. I would ideally like to get to the end. I would ideally like to have half a game played. I would ideally like to get at least round three. But if you don't want to play anymore, please just let me know and we'll stop. I think everyone should do that for pretty much every playtest that isn't specifically testing a full game because I have to a lot of time be like, I've seen enough to give feedback and hope that the designer is going to be like, okay, let's stop instead of like, oh no, we're only in round two. This goes for 45 rounds. And I just have to be like, let me be more clear. I have seen enough to give feedback and I'm not going to play anymore, which makes me feel very rude, but I'm not there to play this one game for five hours. I'm there to play a bunch of games and hopefully give a bunch of feedback. If I was to choose one piece of advice that I hope everyone takes away, <laughs> please let it be that. The first time you ever did that a playtest with me, I felt so free. I felt so liberated. <laughs> and I've been doing that in every single one of my playtests ever since. It's gone to the point now where, because almost no designers do that, before I commit to playing a game, I will say, what is the minimum amount of time I'm required to be here for? Like, can we stop this partway through if the game isn't working or if we reach a point where we need to stop or whatever? Because I don't want to abandon the social contract. I don't want to ruin seven other people's day when I leave an eight-player game. But at the same time, I do not want to be forced into multiple hours of misery right. against my will, right? We're not doing it to hurt your feelings. We're not doing it because we don't like your game. We don't like you. It's just that it's often once you've played enough games, you can give all the necessary feedback within 10 minutes, within half an hour. We don't need to play a full game. So for the sake of just not being wasteful, I don't want to play an extra hour with nothing additional to say. I've actually played a game that was like pretty decent. It wasn't amazing, but it was it was good. Like I was enjoying myself, but I still wanted to stop partway through because I was like, I'm done with my notes and this is fine, but I want to go do other things. I only have so many hours at a con. It's a valuable time. Yeah, people are not playtesting a game to play your game. I'm sorry, but if we wanted to play to play the game, we would probably play a published game, frankly. We're playing it to help you. And if we can help you within 15 minutes, cool, let us help you let us go help someone else or go have a snack or do anything else. <laughs> don't hold us hostage, please. <laughs> please don't hold us hostage. When you're getting feedback from people, you need to step aside from your design and realize that the critiques that they're presenting are critiques of your game, not of you. The best way to frame this in my mind is what is the purpose of this feedback? If you have come to a playtest night or to a convention mm. with a prototype with the purpose of getting your ego boosted, you're doing it wrong. I'm sorry. Like, if you want to get your ego boosted, prototyping is not the way to do it because it's going to take you time to get good. And if you really want people to just play your game and say nice things, play it with your mom, play it with your best friend, 
Play it with people who are emotionally invested in making you feel good. I don't want to make you feel bad, but that's not my primary motivation. I want to make you a better designer, and I want to make your game better. The most effective way of getting better at design and getting better games is negative feedback. If you took an average game and got nothing but positive feedback for 10 years, it could never reach the same heights as a game that got purely negative feedback for two months. I try to mix it up, I try to sandwich, I try to make sure I say what I liked and what I didn't like. But frankly, if you are not ready for negative feedback, don't bring your prototype to a prototype night. I actually have a positive story about this. So I think it was second year pro TO. I playtested a game with some other people and the designer just was very defensive. Any critique that was brought up about the game was immediately dismissed. Oh, you're playing it wrong. Oh, this doesn't happen often. Oh, this is actually good because of this. Well, hang on, AJ, doesn't that mean that they have an amazing game? If it was all negative feedback, doesn't that mean that it's... It must be. (laughs) But after about a half hour of this, me and uh, the other designers that were playing this game, you know, picked up on the fact that we weren't being heard and just stopped suggesting things and stopped giving feedback, played the game quietly, made our way away. Immediately afterwards, I playtested one of my games with you right beside them. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. This was actually the first playtest of Colossus that you had played. And this was like my second or third playtest of Colossus ever. So it was rough. So you laid into it, right? And again, you laid into the design, not me. I am not my design. You know, you raised many, many (laughs) points about problems in the design and ways to try and reassess and, and things to look at. And I, you know, I listened and I thanked you. And I always think if anyone gives you negative feedback, the first thing you should say is thank you because it is valuable and it is hard often for people to say mean things. Not me. <laughs> and then if memory serves, after that play test, Sen, he did a talk on how to take feedback and, you know, gave a bunch of principles about, you know, listening to people and knowing what feedback to listen to and what feedback not to. I'll try and find that. I think it's up on YouTube and we'll post it. After Sen's talk, the guy who was sitting beside us turned to me, shook my hand and said, thank you for that feedback you're giving me like i'm gonna listen to it that's very lovely and that was such like a such a nice moment because it was like yeah it it was really fun to see that situation really turn around and see like their eyes get opened i guess you know i can tell you that getting feedback is one of the hardest things you will ever do as a creative and there's something about the board game industry actually where a lot of the people who enter have not come from a different field of creativity i'm not saying none you've done theater i've done writing But a lot of people are coming from an engineering background or they've never been in a position to get creative feedback because why would they? That's not a thing that everyone does. And so just go in knowing that it's really hard. It's really hard to get negative feedback. Prepare yourself to be bad at it. I have spent a decade doing improv and writing and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I can tell you the first time I got notes on doing an improv show, whew. Boy, did I argue them back. (laughs) By this point, I think I've firmly put in my 10,000 hours for both giving and getting feedback. But it takes practice and it takes time and it's not something you're going to be good at straight away. So just be prepared for the fact that you're going to be defensive and just try to suppress it, if not fight it. Like AJ said, start with thanks. Don't argue. Please don't argue feedback. It's so tedious to be on the other end of someone saying, well, your feedback's wrong. And you're like, well, then if you don't want to hear it, why am I here? Why are you here? Why did I just spend my time playing this game and giving you thoughts? If they're if they're flat out factually wrong, like this game is broken because every turn you get ten bananas and you're like, well no, you get one banana every six turns. Cool, you can correct that. But don't argue the crux of the feedback. Go away with it, sit with it, think on it. Don't be surprised if at the time you're very defensive and don't like to hear it because it can take time. Even people I know who have been doing this for years are still like, I can't hear that feedback on the day. I need to write it all down, 
put it in a drawer, come back to it a week later, and then try to assess it with fresh eyes, because in that moment, I'm just too attached, I'm too emotional, I'm too defensive. So I just, I just want to, like, you know, be kind to yourself. It's not easy to get feedback. It's incredibly difficult. It feels like they're being mean to you personally. It's your baby. They're attacking your baby. Keep in mind, they are doing it to try to make the work better and to make you a better designer. That's all we do it for. We have no, <laughs> I get no pleasure out of tearing stuff down. I just want to make stuff better. That's what I'm really passionate about. And I want to touch on something you brought up where you had mentioned if they're just wrong, don't listen to them. <laughs> There's a quote that's been passed around a lot. I wish I could attribute who it belongs to but it's that playtesters are excellent at identifying problems and not excellent at identifying solutions to those problems i think it's a neil gaiman quote i'll I'll take an example so remember i think it was last episode when i was talking about i got passionate negative feedback the one particular time that i'll never forget is basically i was playtesting colossus and there's an archer in colossus but the arrows stay on the board. They're, they become a game element. You can use them to climb and you can trip over them, whatever. Exactly. The idea is that you can only have a limited number of arrows. And so I said, ah, they're, I don't know, made of special crystal that's rare, so you only have three. But this guy could not get out of his mind that he's an archer, <laughs> but he only brought three arrows. Why wouldn't he have more arrows, right? And so to me, like, I don't think he's right. I think he is wrong in delivering that feedback. But what that says to me is that for him, at least, I didn't do a good enough job selling the theme. The problem isn't that he needs more arrows. The problem is that he can't buy that the archer doesn't have enough arrows. It's called the note behind the note. So you look at someone's feedback, hey, this player should have more arrows. And you think, okay, they want more arrows, but what are they actually saying? Are they actually saying, I felt helpless? Are they actually saying there was too much scarcity and I was afraid to do anything? Are they actually saying the theme doesn't match up? What is the note behind the note? There's another reason why I really think it's a good idea to write down all the feedback and look at it later when you're less in the moment, especially in a con environment, because in a con environment, you're probably sleep deprived, you've been eating junk food, you have completely oversaturated, you've just had X days of intense human interaction, which for a lot of gamers is not a normal part of their life. I know that at the end of a convention, I go home and I sit in a dark room for two days, basically. Like I am like, oh, that is all the interaction that I need for a while. Cool. I need to recharge. So by day five of Unpub, I'm right writing down all the notes and trying to react to them as little as possible. If I do need to respond to notes, I like to try to phrase it as a question and not like, hey, this doesn't have enough arches. Why do you think that, you idiot? I mean, stuff like, oh, why did you feel that way? So to use the bananas example, if someone says, hey, we all got 10 bananas each turn, that's too much, rather than jumping in and being like, no, you get one banana every two turns, you idiot. I would much (laughs) rather be like, okay, cool. The intention was that you didn't get that many bananas, but why did you remember that way? Or what makes you think that? Or just something that will help me see the note behind the note. Because if, if people felt like they were oversaturated with bananas, then maybe they played it wrong and I didn't notice, or maybe... They just didn't have enough use for it. I think that you should almost never, 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 never argue a note. The value of other people's thoughts is immeasurable. Get as many of them as you can. That time is for them to share their input to you, not for you to give your input to them. One thing I struggle with a little bit is when I'm talking to someone about the solutions they propose, but not the problems they present. And I explain, you know, that's an interesting thought. The reason, and I thought of it as well, the reason why I didn't go down that path is because of this. Or I tried that, doesn't work, here's why. But oftentimes it can feel to playtesters, like just gauging for body language and stuff, that they're not being listened to properly. Do you have any advice for me specifically with that? Yeah, so I actually did an episode of Board Game Design Lab, I think on giving and getting feedback. I think I did a whole how to give feedback episode. And one of the things that I really push is don't offer solutions unless the person asks for them. As a new designer, I would probably encourage you not 
to ask for solutions unless you're really well and truly stuck. With my local, you know, with my Toronto group who I've known for three years, we will throw around solutions all day because we know that we're all going to, you know, give and take and there's going to be no issue and we know that we're all at a certain level of competence. With play testers who are not designers, they will often throw out ideas and hey, sometimes there are gems in there and sometimes it's valuable to hear. But a lot of them will be like, you don't, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I don't want to be rude because again, the, the time is valuable. But a lot of the feedback is just like, well, that, that doesn't actually make sense on a physical or a mechanical level at all. So my tendency is just to avoid solution talk unless it's with another experienced game designer or someone you know very well. If people are offering solutions, I will often just be like, okay, cool. I'm not actually looking for solutions at this point. I really appreciate it. I'll write it down. But at this point, I'm just trying to identify problems and then I'll go off and, and come up with solutions because that's the fun part for me or because I don't want you guys to do that work. There's different ways you can frame it. So if someone's giving solutions, I will try to shut it down rather than respond. Not in a rude way, not in a like your input is unwelcome, but just like, okay, cool. At this point, I'm not really looking for solutions or, okay, I've got a few things here. I think I'm going to just try to focus on working out what you felt about the game and then I will go away and work out how to solve it because I need to process it all. One thing I see a lot of in, this is mostly in the really early designs. Typically, new designers catch this quickly, but one thing I think to watch out for is the first couple turns being wrote. If every turn, the first move is I go here and I get wood. Well, just start everyone with a wood. Right. That's why starting resources are a thing. If you talk to a lot of chess players, they can just fly through the first few turns and they don't like it at all because it's all just come down to rote memorization. They know exactly what moves to make in response to what moves. And then it's only once you get to the mid part of the game that you can actually start playing, right? I guess for me, this is an extension of not solo testing enough. And solo testing, again, we could talk about it for two hours, but when I have a game design, like I said, I will often pull it up in paint and I will play it against myself. And it's not unusual for me to play it against myself a few times. This is more true with games with resources because I want to make sure that the economy doesn't immediately break. But in the process of that, you will often learn, oh man, it really doesn't make any sense to do anything other than get wood for the first three turns. Just look out for those patterns. Just keep an eye on them and go, okay, I've played this against myself three times and I always did this, or if I didn't, I just lost immediately. For me, that's more of a symptom where the root cause is that they haven't valued the playtesters' time enough. Playtesters, enormously valuable. Anyone who playtests, thank you so much. You are doing such a service to every game designer out there. I know that it can be unfun to play a completely broken game, especially in the rough stages, and we all appreciate that you do it. I really enjoy it, and hopefully you do too, which is why you're doing it. But you've got to realize that that playtest time is so valuable. Do everything that you possibly can before bringing other people into your playtest. It should almost be a last resort because it's so valuable. Imagine it costs you $10,000. Whoa, hang on. Am I going to bring out a game I've never playtested? No, I'm spending $10,000 on this. I'm going to do everything I can so that when I get it to them, I'm making the most use of their time possible. Couldn't agree more. That's one thing that I struggle with often is being able to put myself into the mindset to play multi-handed things because oftentimes I'm working on games that have like weird situations, you know, um, uh, social deduction games and stuff like that. Things that are hard to multi-hand, but as much as you can, you absolutely need to be doing that to prevent ruining someone else's experience. And critically, if you're playtesting with someone, the moment you see a critical problem or that it's just not fun or whatever, you just need to end it. Like, okay, thanks everyone. I really appreciate your time. I see this problem. It's a huge problem and I don't want to waste any more of your time. Thank you. You have helped me. Now I can fix it and try this again later. As you design more, you'll sometimes be able to hotfix that in the moment. Be like, hey guys, I've noticed that we're all just completely running out of wood or all completely flooded with wood every single turn. So I'm just going to add a quick rule now that all wood is worth half 
or whatever. If you're a new designer, especially, yeah, maybe rather than think of it as $10,000 per playtest, think of it as $1,000 per minute. And so that's why you want to say to them, hey, <laughs> as soon as you feel like you can give feedback, please let me know and we will stop because the meter's ticking. <laughs> so now we're getting to the balance conversation. The TLDR is balance last, if ever. Like you don't need to worry about your game being perfectly balanced in most cases. In most cases, uh, you actually want slight imbalances, but we could do a whole episode on that. But the things you should be watching for when you're playtesting, if you have to balance it in play, you should be dealing with the egregious problems, like we just mentioned. If the game just does not work, it's like, well, all I'm ever going to do is take this one resource because this resource is just twice as good as everything else. It's an obvious problem. It probably has an obvious solution. And when you're dealing with imbalances, a good rule of thumb is to overcorrect. So if this attack deals 100 damage and you're like, oh, that's kind of weak, don't boost it to 110 or 120. Boost it to 150. If it's still not powerful enough, think of how many playtests you just skipped (laughs) seeing that it wasn't powerful enough again and again. I know a common rule of thumb is just to always double it. Yeah. And if you did overcorrect... Well, then you've got somewhere to work back from and you know what the acceptable range is for it, right? The problems that are the small balance issues are small issues, so you don't need to worry about them until much later in the design process. And you're not going to be able to catch every single balance issue. Tragically, we don't have infinite amounts of time. We have limited lifespans. <laughs> Even if you play test the final version of a game a hundred times, guess what? Your game's going to be played more than you've play tested in that whole span on launch day like yeah if there's a problem someone's gonna find it do your best do you have anything to add or correct no i think you covered it all so my last thing for playtesting, which is a really big bugbear of mine is teaching the game poorly <laughs> this is my tldr quick hot fix in terms of just the structure of what you're going to do because if you just follow this very simple formula it will solve half your problems and not everyone's good at teaching teaching is a skill most people are bad at teaching, particularly a lot of game designers I find are bad at teaching. Prototypes are already harder to learn than normal. So start with context. Give me the theme. Tell me where we are. You are all different children of the queen who just died, and one of you is going to be the new ruler. We've got something that we can scaffold onto for the rest of the rules explanation. We have some broad, high-level understanding of what's going to be going on. Peter, tell me What is our goal in this game? The goal is to, through conniving and manipulation and influence, become the new ruler by collecting the most ruler points at the end of round five. Great. So now we know who we are, where we are, what we're doing. So we've got some broad level ideas, a tiny bit more fleshed out than before. The goal is the really important thing to start with because everything else, we can see how that works towards the goal. If we haven't already... You hit me with a hook. What's the really interesting, cool thing if we haven't gotten to it already? <laughs> I'm trying to think what would make me excited to play this game. Man, you're going to come up with something and then you're going to make a game about it. It's going to be The hook is that the room that you are physically in right now is the kingdom and you'll have to go to different parts of the room to get information to try to become the new ruler. So right away, we now know that this game does something that very few, if any, games have ever done before. You got our attention. So then, you're just going to tell us what is a very basic example of the round structure. Just very broad strokes to further flesh out our understanding. So every turn, each of you will be dealt 
a different area of the kingdom that you have control over and then you will choose an area which can be the same or different to go to and start to influence. Once you're there, you can interact with everyone who's in that corner and you can swap cards and you can swap resources, but only with people who are in the actual same physical area as you. So now we've got a pretty good idea of what's going on over the course of the game. Now we can get into what I call the nitty gritty. Peter, you can give examples if you want for this, but this is the basically the rest of the game. So you would be teaching us the rules for what turns look like, what the different icons mean, your actions, resources, different things that might pop up over the course of play. What I like to do is teach as little of this as physically possible and start playing and teach more rules as we go. The more you can do that, the better. If you have to front load all your information, it can be overwhelming. If you can piecemeal things over the course of one or two rounds, that can really help to ease people into the experience. Definitely, definitely, definitely don't go into rules exceptions. Ideally, you have as few rules exceptions as possible, but don't sit there <laughs> and list them all out. That's the number one thing that bugs me when I'm being taught a game. Like, here's what you do, here's how this works, here's this works. Now, this interacts with this in this way, and I'm like, I, do I don't want to know this yet. Just get me playing as quickly as possible. So my literal last step in this process is called hide edge cases and BS. <laughs> Only bring that up if you absolutely have to, when you have to. When someone says, hey, wait a minute, if I'm using a snail in the sink, does it fall down the drain? And you're like, ah, you asked. Now I will tell you. Until that moment, you don't need to. The snail almost never goes in the sink, people. Yeah, it, uh, it's the worst thing about learning rules. I will mention briefly that different people learn different ways. So there's oral learners, kinetic learners, visual learners. And this is one of the reasons why I really try to get reference cards in, because then visual learners are like, aha, he's saying things, but I have somewhere that my eyes can be. I'm very much a kinetic learner. I want to start moving stuff as quickly as possible. So that's why the first time I played Colossus, I was a bit like, hey, 40 minutes in, can I just move this bit? You gave me this nice thing on the board. I just want to make its arms and legs move around. Honestly, with most of my games, I will just play around and then teach as I go and then be like, cool, that was a sample round. Let's start again. Village Pillage is especially good for this. But if you ever play a game with me, I will always try to just get around going so that the visual learners are seeing how stuff moves. The kinetic learners are moving stuff. The oral learners are hearing me talk about it. And then reset. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be a big deal. Just be like, okay, you got the idea. Cool, let's play for real now. I get a little bit of leeway because I've had a lot of games out and I can safely take a bit, bit more of people's times. The other thing too is at the end of the sample round, you can ask, do you want to reset? Or do you want to keep going? Most people will say keep going. Sometimes people will be like, oh, if I'd known how this worked, I wouldn't have spent 500 gold on a carrot in my first turn. But most of the time, again, a play test is not actually about playing the game. It's about testing the play. People will be like, okay, cool, that sample round, we got the idea. The exception is probably hidden rolls. If you've given everyone hidden rolls and then you play a sample round, you probably want to reshuffle. But if you can play a sample round and then ask, keep going, and people will probably say, yep. And then you can just get to the playing as quickly as possible. Anything else you want to add to uh, playtesting errors that uh, new designers make? Again, this is a very personal thing for me. Tell me if your game is a co-op before I sit down. I don't like co-ops. I don't like playing them. I will playtest them if I have to. It's not my first choice. You probably don't want me playtesting your co-op because I'm not going to be the best person to give feedback because I don't play or like them. So many times I have been halfway through a game's rules or halfway through the first turn and I'm like, so how do I win? And they're like, well, you all win together. And I'm like, mention that up front. I probably don't want to play it. So <laughs> more broadly, I suppose, make sure people understand what they're getting in for. If your game is a Cards Against Humanity clone, 
flag it up front because a lot of more experienced designers just won't want to play it. You won't get much useful feedback from them other than don't make a Cards Against Humanity clone. So if you've said, hey, this is a game where everyone's going to submit answers and someone's going to judge them, flag it up front. And if you find that flagging up front means people don't want to play your game, take that as feedback in itself. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I would blatantly refuse to play any semi-co-op put in front of me. And I was tricked into playing one because someone didn't tell me about the semi-co-op <laughs> thing. He was like, oh yeah, you know, you play and you one winner and blah, 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 and it's a Euro game. Okay, cool. I sat down and then about half an hour into rules explanation, because of course he was like, Oh, and if this happens, everyone loses, which anyone can trigger at any time. Like, no, why? I think in addition to just broadly telling people, like, here's the genre, blah, 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 I think it's very important to make the length clear. And I'm not saying, like, this game will be exactly 45 minutes, but saying, hey, if you have to go in 45 minutes, 45 minutes is all we need to play through to the point where we can uh, give feedback and stuff. And don't force people to stay after that point has finished, because that is very, very tedious. And if people have plans, it's very rude. The other thing I will flag in terms of feedback is make sure that you've left time for the feedback. If someone has to go in 45 minutes, don't start the game and exactly 45 minutes end it, because then they have to run and they won't be able to tell you anything. Be prepared for feedback. Maybe even have a few questions. You can find very good questions on any number of websites. We'll try to find one and link to it at the bottom. I am one of those designers who gets the most valuable information just from watching people play the game. The feedback is like icing on the cake. But it's important, A, because these people have played your game and they want to express themselves and that's incredibly valuable. And B, because if you have good questions, that can be the most valuable point. That could be the time when you're like, okay, guys, this playtest was really to see if anyone was bothered by this being missing. And if half the players are like, I did feel like that was missing versus everyone being like, oh, I never even thought of that being in there. That can be really valuable. So work out what you want from the feedback and ideally have a few questions geared towards that. Don't come in with a list of 25 questions and methodically work through them. Again, people's time is valuable. Pick the top two or three. Don't try to hog people's time, basically. It's a respect thing. Ooh, one thing I want to add is uh, don't give me a feedback form. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do paperwork. Yeah, (laughs) I will just circle some stuff and leave fields blank. Uh, Your job is to write it down. Write write down the feedback. That's the other thing. Like, either I will often pull out my phone and record it, or I will just sit there and, and scribble everything down as people are talking. Definitely track it in some way. If I'm giving you feedback and you're nodding and I'm like, he's not going to remember this in 24 hours time. That is also a little bit disrespectful, I think. Record it in some way, whether that's recording the audio or writing it down. Don't make me write it down, but you should write it down. <laughs> so on to pitching. Now, this is more your domain than mine, so I expect that you'll have a bit more to say. But I experience sort of different types of pitching. I kind of go into this into, into my talk. Uh, But I've had a lot of people even approach the store and say, hey, I want to sell my game to you. Here's my game, which isn't (laughs) the way to do it. But I've heard a lot of those and I know what I don't like to hear. (laughs) Obviously, again, we can't say it enough. You got to lead with your hook. Your hook has to be juicy. If your hook's not juicy, walk back out the door (laughs) and don't tell me everything about your game. I don't need you to give me a two hour monologue about the backstory and all this nonsense. Your hook should be good enough that I'm asking you the questions. And you're like, oh, I'm glad you asked that. Here's what this does. And if they're not asking the questions, then you probably made a mistake somewhere down the line. But you shouldn't be the one dumping things. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't pitch a whole lot. I've, I've pitched in the past. I don't pitch a whole lot. But the way that I like to both give and receive pitches is just bits moving around. You're pitching a game. 
you could be very eloquent and convince me that the game is good, but until I actually play it, I'm not going to know. So I just want to play the game. If you have a 10 minute pitch with me, cool. Come in prepared to play the game for seven minutes and have and talk about it for three. When I'm pitching a game, I will be like, hey, here it is. Here's how you play. Let's go. So that involves really mastering the stuff we were talking about earlier, where you need to get me playing as quickly as possible, which means that you can't have a 45 minute explanation because I'm not going to sit through a 45 minute explanation before playing the game. I want to get straight to that sample round, essentially. Just get me moving bits, get me an idea of the game flow as quickly as possible. You know, I actually do pitch a lot to our localization partners. When I went over to Essen a few years back, we had to basically speed dating level pitching just every single localization partner. So we have a catalog of, at that point, I think seven or eight games. We almost exclusively pitched Village Pillage because it has such a good sample round. I could be like, here's a card, here's a card, let's go. Literally, I hand you a card, I hand you a card, and we can start playing. And then I can teach everything else as we go. So my advice to people pitching would be try to get the game played and try to get your pitch worked into a sample round. <laughs> what about for games that are like two hours long and have a longer rules explanation, like a heavy Euro or something? So it's interesting. If you take a modern heavy Euro, so something designed in the last, let's say, three to five years, almost without exception, you'll find that they have surprisingly fast turns. <laughs> I'm going to use Great Western Trail as an example. That's one of my all-time favorite Euros. In that game, you pick up your piece and you move it to one of four spots and you do what's on that spot. That's it. You can come in, set the game up, talk to me as you're setting it up, put out the bare minimum components to play, and I can be picking a thing up and choosing where to go. And as soon as I'm doing that, I'm immediately more invested. I pick up my meeple and I'm like, oh, what's this symbol mean? And they could be like, well, it means this. Oh, what's this symbol mean? Oh, it means this. And I'm like, okay, cool. I've made this choice. Let me see what happens. That's a heavy Euro. That is not a light game. I've only played one game by Vital Deserta. That is kind of a little bit different because that is a heavy Euro where the turns are very, very heavy. So I can't really give advice on pitching that. But except for that one very specific subtype, work out what the core of a turn is and let me do it. And if it's a fun turn, I'm more likely to like your game. And frankly, even if it's a heavy Euro, the turns should be fun. <laughs> I don't think many heavy Euros exist where every turn is a real nightmare to play. So you don't need to explain what every single ramification of everything is. Just give me enough that I can move a piece. I guess for me, work out what your core mechanical hook is. And I think for heavy Euro, you really have to have a core mechanical hook. The bigger a game is, the more hooks it needs, basically. A very expensive game needs multiple hooks from different angles to get me in. And so if you can condense your mechanical hook down to a turn, which ideally you'll be able to and get me to play that turn, cool. Now I'm playing your game and then I can at least start to assess whether I like it. Whereas before that, I'm really assessing if I like you and liking you is nice. I'm sure it's very nice for people to like you or not, <laughs> but that's not what you're pitching. You're not pitching, hey, Peter, can I come work at your company? Yeah, we'll have to work together, but I really just want to see if your game is good because I can like people without liking their games. It's very rare for me to like a game without liking the person. So the important thing is to get me to like your game so that I want to work with you and then I can work out if I like you or not. Are there any other common mistakes new designers make when pitching games? The big thing for me is when they don't seem to know what their game is. This is also something I actually fell into both in board games and screenwriting. I'd design a set of mechanics and be like, it could be any theme, so people will want to pick it up and then put their favorite theme on it. That's not a good pitch. As a publisher, I don't want to do that work. You're basically pitching me half a thing. I want you to come in and be like, this is the best possible diamond mining game. This is a game that is diamond mining, and if you like diamond mining, you're going to love it. If you don't, you're not going to like it. 
and that allows me to make that decision. My role here is to make a decision based on what you're pitching me, not to vaguely like the idea of it and then put it into a theme and game. And that's not to say that you need to be so married to your theme that you can't allow people to change it, but come in with an idea of what it is. Come in with a pitch. <laughs> Don't come in with a non-pitch. This could be anything. This could be a multiplayer game. This could be a solo game. This could be a co-op. This could have this theme. This could have this theme. That's not actually a pitch. That's an unpitch. That's the opposite of a pitch. That's saying, hey, pitch me what you think my game should be, which is not going to impress me. <laughs> Come in and pitch me. Don't unpitch me. For sure. Now it's just some miscellaneous stuff. One thing that is very important is your game has to be fun the first time people play it. And sometimes new designers are like, well, this game is really good once you get the hang of it, two or three plays in, not remotely good enough. There was uh, one design that I was working on, and pretty much universally, people would really like it after play three. <laughs> <laughs> after play three is light years beyond acceptable. <laughs> if your game doesn't encourage someone to play the game after one play, uh, if they want to play it again, if they didn't have a good time, they're going to tell their friends they didn't have a good time. They're not going to feel invested to come back. Maybe if they're like, oh, you know, I got it just near the end and I kind of want to try it again. But you really need to aim for the new players when you're designing. Yeah. There's a game, Sentinel Tactics by Greater Than Games, who I've, I've done some work with them. That's my that's my disclaimer. They're friends of mine. I like them. And Sentinel Tactics, oh, I love that game. No one else likes it. It's a team versus team tactics game. And I'm like, yes. The trouble is that it's not fun the first three times you play it. There's just too many rules, too many rules exceptions. They're doing a new version, which I'm hoping will clean a lot of stuff up. Because once you get into it, oh, it's amazing. But it has exactly that same problem. And it was a massive flop because people played it. They were like, oh, I didn't enjoy that. Remember, your game won't exist in a vacuum. It's going to be competing with every other game that's out there right now. And so The Wire is an amazing show. It's hard to get people to watch. That is kind of worth it. This is... <laughs> no kidding. But, holy God, like... They would have been so much more successful if it had been good from episode one instead of good from episode seven. <laughs> yeah, look at what happened with The Wire versus what happened with Game of Thrones. Not not the ending <laughs> of Game of Thrones. We're not talking about that. But the first episode of The Wire is like, here's 30 different characters... We're not telling you anything about any of them. Just deal with it. It's like they almost start in the middle of a season yeah. in a lot of ways. Whereas the first episode of Game of Thrones introduces you to just as many characters, if not possibly more off the top of my head. I can't imagine it's more. No? There's so many characters in that okay. first episode of The Wire. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but in the first episode of Game of Thrones, I mean, you're not going to know everybody off by heart, but does such a good job of like, here's this person. They get one line in the first episode, but you're already like, Oh, yeah, cool beard guy. I know cool beard guy. And then, again, we can scaffold onto this later. This is Fun Problems, the combination game design and screenwriting podcast. <laughs> yeah, We can branch out, double our audience, right? That's what we do. We want to appeal yeah. to everyone, Peter. Then everyone will watch it. We can be it. like, this podcast does whatever you want it to be. You choose, and it does it. We're not going to tell. We're not going to pitch you what it actually does. We're just going to make stuff and be like, find the good podcast in here somewhere. You can do it. I spent a lot of time thinking about on-ramping. And this is why I like reference cards. This is why I like first rounds that maybe aren't a neutered version, but just give you something. This is why I like personal goals. Give someone a personal goal and they can be like, oh, cool. I don't know what any of this means, but my card says I need to get four greens. So I'm just going to listen to that bit of the rule where they explain how you get greens. That's the bit I care about. Anything you can do to on-ramp is really going to help. 
Again, this is all kind of more advanced stuff, though. I don't expect new designers to be masters of, of on-ramping. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely going to be an episode in and of itself later on. One thing I want to talk about, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah, that's the idea that people who don't know about stuff feel like they know more about that stuff than people who do know about the stuff. <laughs> exactly. Let me put that in a better way. Uh, the, the more you know about something, the more you know that you don't know. So if you look at the Dunning-Kruger effect on a graph, it basically starts off and you know nothing about a subject and you know you know nothing about a subject but then as soon as you know a little bit about a subject you feel like you know a lot about it it's disproportionate you you get way more confidence than you gained information but then over time that peak will slowly drop down and you'll realize just how little you know before very very slowly climb back up as you gain the expertise. I wonder how it would map to the Uncali Valley. I'd love to see those on the same graph. <laughs> it's basically the same as the Uncanny Valley, except with a huge spike at the start. Yeah. If you Google it, you'll see what I mean. What I want to talk about is new designers often fall into the trap of thinking that they know way more than that they know. Almost immediately afterwards, they start to get imposter syndrome, like, oh, I don't know anything. Oh, everything I make is garbage. Both of those are psychological traps you need to fight out of, you know? I get so much cringe going back and listening to any podcast interview I did in 2016. I just started my company. My first Kickstarter made $90,000. I was like, oh, damn, I know this. Like, cool. I'm, I'm an expert at this. And so I did all these interviews where I was like, well, here's a, oh, yeah, I, I had great instant success. Here's how I did it. And I'm looking back and being like, oh, Peter. Oh, my dear, sweet Peter. Just shut up. <laughs> just, just stop talking. <laughs> just shut up. You knew so little and you thought you knew so much. So, yeah, that's, that's a very clear example of Dunning-Kruger effect. For me, it was uh, first year Proteo because... I had designed stuff, just, you know, classic big fish, small pond story. I was like the game designer of my town. I was like, oh yeah, he's so into games. And like, you know, uh, to an extent, I did know a decent amount about game design, all things considered. You know, a counterplay was something I'd been considering since I was in grade 10. When I went to Proto-TO, almost immediately, I was just slapped <laughs> in the face and I was like, oh wow. <laughs> you were the ingenue coming to Hollywood to be a big star. And the first week, you know, a taxi drives through and, and the rain splatters all over you and you're like, what have I signed up for? <laughs> well, and see, I didn't think that, like, my games were amazing. I knew they had a lot of work to do and I didn't expect them to be nearly as polished as other people's designs. I just didn't realize how far behind the eight ball I was comparatively to, like, you and the whole Toronto design crew. Every person that I met, I was like, wow. And at that same convention, I got to sit down and play test a game one-on-one -on -one with Eric Lang oh, wow. for, like, an hour. <laughs> wow, was that eye-opening. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of stuff did you realize you didn't know at that first Proto-TO? One thing is that was my first taste of hook and product first design. So the two games that I had brought were one, basically a magic-esque <laughs> two-player. It, it wasn't CCG. I wasn't planning for that. It was a dueling game. Dueling games are a very, very common thing for first-time designers. I'd say the three most common things I see from first-time designers are dueling games inspired by Magic the Gathering variants on r for some reason which is a great little game it was published as brave rats over here but the original was r by the same designer as love letter i believe just a really clever little thing for some reason new designers are just like i want to make that game that specific game is what i want to make i don't even know that what is it oh it's amazing you each have the numbers one through seven in your hand and then each of you play one face down and flip them and they all have a unique ability and your goal is just to win two or three rounds so the seven can be beaten by the one, etc. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've played a lot of games that do that. You've probably played a million prototypes that are clearly inspired by this because 
for whatever reason, new designers love making that. And then thirdly, Cards Against Humanity's ripoffs. Oh my god, so many. So many different judging games, constantly. <laughs> That's one of the most common mistakes new designers make, making those three games. Yeah, no kidding. So the card battling game, you could either use each card as a resource to play other cards, you know, like mana and magic or whatever, or you could play them for the actual card effect. And for me, that was the hook of it, but I didn't think of it in those terms. And also, I didn't realize that there's like a million games that do that already. <laughs> and so... I'm not trying to bully you, but like the sentence I thought that was the hook is just so representative of, of where you're at. It's beautiful. <laughs> One of the things I learned was there's a lot of games. The other game that I brought was basically Formula Day because I played Formula Day. And so this was borderline an expansion for it, where it was just adding <laughs> combat, essentially. Yeah, I made other tweaks to it as well, but it basically was just like, this is like Mad Max. And, you know, honestly, it, it ended up being more like a, a Mario Kart sort of game, I think, when I brought it to uh, Pro-TO. And, you know, it was light and it was it was kind of fun and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't right. a publishable design, you know? Which is fine. As a new designer, you don't have to be making publishable designs. You've got seven to... What did I say? Six to 12 unpublishable designs in you. Get them out so you can start making the other ones. And so I was talking to Eric Lang and one thing that he said while we were having our wonderful, wonderful discussion. Oh my gosh. Can't put a price on that. Um, he pointed to a game like right beside us and he was like, I haven't been listening to the rules explanation, but we can both tell this is essentially Settlers of Catan with a twist, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, no one is asking for Settlers of Catan with a twist. They've already made their money and moved on. You need to be farming for new marketable design space which is finite so that was a big takeaway for me the way that people play test was very eye-opening for me in terms of what feedback they are looking for and how they internalize it a lot of this i got from playtesting with you and seeing what types of things you asked people for just in general over the weekend seeing what types of feedback people offered do you remember what i asked for i have no memory of this so i'm just curious so part of it was just that you asked for specific feedback in general instead of just paying attention to people because i am very good at reading body language i always was i mean it, i'm a theater kid what do you expect but you would ask for like how did it feel when this person played this ability against you and i was like oh yeah, and I mean, like, again, counterplay is something that I knew about, but those types of questions of, like, how did you feel when this thing happened is just not something that I had really considered, those types of things. Gotcha. I'm trying to remember if there were any other, like, nuggets that I picked up on. Delivering on the hook was critical, because there were a lot of games that I would see the pitch for, and I would come to play, and I'd be crushingly <laughs> disappointed by the results of what it actually was. One other thing was, when I was playing other people's pro-types, Seeing how other people politely gave feedback to people at their level was really critical. Because again, I still didn't know a lot about game design then. And people who gave feedback to me and people who gave feedback to other people's designs, it was definitely adjusted. And it was funny because, like I'm kind of alluding to, I had a good head knowledge of these things, but I had almost no practical understanding of it. And again, big fish, small pond. You were book smart, but not street smart. Exactly. And so one of the things was while I was talking to Eric Lang, he would say a lot of things, assuming I knew them, that I was like, wow, I had never <laughs> considered these things before. And one cute little example is Eric Lang was my favorite designer before Protio. <laughs> now you hate him. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's still a terrific designer, still terrific. But I had played Couriers, which is a, um, a dice pool game, like Dominion with Dice, essentially. Have you ever played it? I have not. Okay, so it's a well-designed game, but I pointed out, like, there's a there's one particular die in the base game that's just blatantly overpowered. There were more criticisms I had than that, but I didn't want to, like, walk in and be like, hey, you're my favorite designer, but your game is crap, right? Let me list all the problems. Your feedback to him is probably not super valuable. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, 
this die. Can you just tell me why? Why did you make it? You must have known how ridiculous it was. He kind of looked at me quizzically and he was like, you play with the advanced tool that you can buy two dice at once, right? <laughs> and I was like, huh? And he's like, the back of the book, the advanced rule, you don't play with that? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, you're playing the mass market version. Use the advanced rule. It's not a problem. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, first of all, when I read advanced rules, I used to think like, those are advanced. Like, I want to touch those. Those are for like super geniuses or something. Keeping in mind, I had at that point been playing Twilight Imperium for like eight years or something ridiculous. Yeah, but you were right? playing the mass market version of Twilight Imperium. The advanced version is much, <laughs> yeah. much more complicated. Like to me, the advanced rules in TI, yeah, those are complicated. <laughs> and that's what I thought of as advanced. So I just like mentally blocked those off. Learning that like designers design games differently for different audiences, but include both rule sets in the box. Like those are the types of things that really got me thinking and really got cemented because actually the next month I started working full-time at Board Game Bliss. Oh, wow. So uh, it was quite the deep dive into the huh. industry. We probably should wrap up. Do you have any other examples of common mistakes made by new designers? That was actually my last one. So for next episode, it's about design space, edge cases, and expansions because they are all closely related. Based on the length of this episode, I'm wondering if we should do an episode design space, an episode expansion, and episode edge cases, because <laughs> these are getting long. <laughs> Probably. It's funny, because we go off on sort of tangents for a while, and it takes a lot longer than I think it's going to, so yeah, <laughs> maybe end up being three episodes, but for the time being, when is an edge case worth the extra rules or mental load? I'm tempted to just say never. <laughs> just be really hard line and be like, nope, don't ever <laughs> allow it. I'm going through my own designs because I'm trying to remember the last edge case that I personally published. And it was in Night of the Mummy. And it was, <laughs> you're right, these are related. Night of the Mummy is essentially an expansion for Dracula's Feast. And this was if you took one of the promos from the original Dracula's Feast and combined it with one of the cards from this expansion, the game would break. Now, both of these cards I thought were really good. They only ever formed a problem when they were both in a specific thing. So in the section marked promos of the rulebook, it just said, hey, if you're playing with this one role, don't play with this other role. It's an edge case. Every other two roles in almost 30 roles now, all of them can be shuffled in and you can pick any of them for a game. There's no other exceptions. There was this one and I was like, look, I can't go back and take out the promo. I really like this card. This card makes this set better. So I th I'm just going to do it, and I'm just going to say in the rules, if you're playing with this one promo, don't include this one card from this set. That, for me, was an edge case, because every other two cards can be combined. But it was worth it because it was so rare. It was set up, so you would only ever run into it if you'd put those in the game in the first place, and you could just, by reading it here, you would not do that. Individually, each of them added so much to their set. So the promo made the original game much better. This card was vital for the expansion to work. And it was only, yeah, it was only the combination of the two that ever caused the problem. So it, it's got to be overwhelmingly worth it. The other situation I would say is if people are intuiting an edge case, which sounds like it's never going to happen, but there's definitely games where you're like, hang on, it's weird to me that I can play Big Shoe on Whale. They don't have any feet. In that case, I'm kind of like, you know what? You're right. It makes total thematic sense for this to be an edge case where these can't be combined if people are instinctively like, this shouldn't happen, even though it's an edge case, I'd say, yep, go with, go with what players want to do and balance around that. That's a really interesting way of resolving the tension between not wanting to have edge cases and wanting to do the thing that's intuitive for the players. Makes a lot of sense. So now, time for our off-topic fun question for fun problems. This is a personal question, sometimes lighthearted, sometimes not. 
designed to get to know each other better and designed to let you guys get to know us better. So, Peter, if you were an animal, what would you be? A human. <laughs> wow. You are no fun at all. You must be great at parties. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the answer. I, did I get it? Did I get it right? <laughs> did I score the points? Uh, oy vey. Do I need to go first and show you how this is done? I'm so bad at <laughs> hypotheticals because I just want to ask a million clarifying questions. Do I have my memory? Do I have my intelligence? Like, give me a bit more of a situation here. <laughs> okay, okay. So knowing the personality traits that you have, oh. which animal do you think <laughs> compares to that? I was imagining a wizard comes up to you <laughs> and is like, you have to spend the rest of your life <laughs> in the body of an animal. What do you choose? So I'm glad that I got you clarified. No, okay. I asked if you were an animal, what would you be? Not what would you like to be? This is very precise rules language. Well, then human is the answer. <laughs> then I answered completely <laughs> correctly and you shouldn't be mad at me. <laughs> If you were a non-human animal, you jerk. This is why rule books need to go through more than one revision. <laughs> I'm going to answer the question, which animal best reflects your personality? Because I think that's what you're trying to ask. All right, let, let, let's pause. We can cut all that. What animal best reflects your personality? Oh, no, that's that's all staying. That's all oh, staying man. in. This is, this is prime gold material. This episode's going to be two hours long, and you're keeping that. <laughs> <laughs> Does it add more than 10 fun? That's the question. <laughs> this is about getting to know us better, and people need to know how poorly you phrased that question. This is vital for the listeners. <laughs> this is really applying the lessons we've been talking about. There's a meme that went around about two years back that was pick three fictional characters, the combination of which best reflects you. And I was like, this is an amazing meme. Because I was immediately like... Alexander Hamilton from the musical Hamilton. I realize not technically a fictional character, but that is a fictionalized version of the person. Grover, for obvious reasons. <laughs> and thirdly, from Bojack Horseman, Mr. Peanut Butter. Because I am so very... I'm, I'm Mr. Peanut Butter with the drive to write of Alexander Hamilton and the mischievousness and facial hair of Grover. That's me. That, that's me right there. So I'm very tempted to say Golden Retriever because I think that Mr. Peanut Butter was written to be as Golden Retrievery as possible. And I am a, a dolphin of a human, basically. So dolphin or Golden Retriever, possibly monkey. But again, that's just me being like, because then I could keep the intelligence level roughly of a human, but that's not the question. So Golden Retriever with a blue beard is my answer. I'm going to have to rewatch Bojack Horseman because I honestly don't see the uh, Mr. Peanut Butter too much in you. So to me, the traits that stand out for you that I was thinking of was, I think that you're very independent. I think you're very industrious. You're confident. You're driven. You're very capable. But I think that you also couldn't exist without the admiration of others. <laughs> and so to that end, I selected the bald eagle. Bald eagle. See, I'm not from this continent, so I know nothing about bald eagles as animals. All I know is that Sam the American eagle is a bald <laughs> eagle and that they are representative of America. So I guess that's pretty good. I'm, I'm very into America. So I would say that if I had to define what a bald eagle is, I would say it's uh, independent, industrious, confident, driven, <laughs> capable, but uh, enjoys the admiration of others. See, the thing is, I'm very independent and autonomous, but I really enjoy other people. I feel like there's a level of golden retrieveriness in there. <laughs> very fair. Now, do you want to suggest mine before I say what I think I am? Yeah, it's tricky. I'm surprisingly bad at this game, I think. <laughs> Let's see. This is the hardest question of the podcast. I'm going through animals. I'm not a massive animal person, so that, that might be why I struggle with this. I love animals. I think in another life, I could be a zookeeper. Actually, I took a look because I got laid off from Board Game Bliss to see if there were any jobs <laughs> opening at the zoo because I just wanted to work there so badly. 
Only volunteer gigs. The trouble is that you've had time to go away and like work out a flattering way with like a little twist insult at the end. Very effective. Whereas I have to just do this <laughs> off the top of my head. So your traits, I would say that you're very upbeat. You're very chipper. You are very loyal and you really enjoy other... You need other people in a way that I don't. I'm very happy to be off doing my own thing, whereas I think you need other people. You're very passionate, very driven, very focused. I think that you have a lot more focus than I do. I do a million different things. I write, I make Sudokus, I make a podcast, I do board game design, I run an online game of Werewolf, I just do everything that comes to my mind. I'm very scattered. Again, Golden Retriever comes to mind. And you, I think, are much more driven and focused. So I'm just trying to work out what animal that all applies to. I'm going to go with dolphin. I'm going to say you're a dolphin. They're a social, they're a very, very social creature. They are very upbeat and they seem to be pretty determined. They seem to really have their stuff together. <laughs> what, what, what did you answer? I think you mostly nailed me. I had a very different answer though that you're going to think is off base. I said cat. <laughs> oh yeah, I could totally see cat. I just don't think about animals. That's the thing. Like now that you've said, I'm like, yes, obviously cat. That makes total sense. Maybe cats are a little bit too independent. Cats don't want to hang out with you so here's the thing i adore spending time with people but very specific people and i also i'm an introvert so i need my alone time to recharge and i can actually get quite irritable if i don't have my alone time when i was in college my roommate and i obviously were in the same room for almost all the time and i was really on edge all the time and i was really rude to him we're good now but it was very (laughs) difficult for me because i never had that opportunity to rest and recharge and be on my own so i think that that aspect of a cat is actually very important also you really like to lick your own butt holy god do you enjoy that (laughs) the thing that i think you hit that isn't represented in cat that i just didn't have an animal that perfectly represents me is a passion i think if there is one word that really really defines me is i'm a very passionate person and cats aren't exactly that passionate, Yeah. Uh, but I didn't have anything to add there. Maybe lion. Yeah, maybe. I do love, like, lounging around. I do love attention, you know. Yeah, just, like, scruffle my <laughs> hair and all that. Like, I live off of attention. <laughs> well, that is our episode of Fun Problems, the problems of fun, common mistakes made by new designers. If you do want to send in a pitch for us to go through, we might do that as a feature at the start of episodes, or we might get none and never do it, or we might get too many and do a whole episode where we just run through them. It's up to you. What you send us will determine this. That could be fun. You can email them or email a personal question if you want to add one to the hopper to funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. AJ will get that. I will never see it, so you can be as mean about me as you like. And we'll be back next time with possibly a smaller episode because this one was very long definitely a smaller episode the only other thing is if you want follow us on facebook and twitter both are at fun problems pod we have just started them up so don't expect it to be jam-packed full of content <laughs> but that is another way that you can interact with us awesome thanks so much for listening and we will talk to you next time bye bye guys Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.